0: Well, here we are. We've made it through the life of Moses this summer. Starting next week, we're going to be doing a fall series through First and Second Peter, two letters that were written and are found in the New Testament, written by Peter, the disciple of Jesus, and we're excited about that. It's going to be a series that takes us all the way into December, all the way to Christmas, believe it or not, um, if you want to think about that coming up. Um, but uh, we're excited about that. But glad to wrap up our series. I think it's been good. We've learned a lot. And and this morning we're jumping really pretty far into the future from where we've been. Uh, recently we've talked about the Ten Commandments and we talked about the Golden Calf. And this morning's text is actually 40 years later. 40 years have passed. And those 40 years have been filled with God's provision. Uh, there's stories of God providing for his people in the wilderness, whether it was their shoes, that, their sandals that didn't go bad or, or run out, or whether it was manna that was provided, this bread-like substance that would just show up on the ground to feed the Israelites or the quail that were provided. So you see a lot of the provision of God. You also see a lot of problems. In these 40 years, a lot of internal problems, people complaining about Moses' leadership, people rebelling against Moses' leadership, and even problems from the outside enemies attacking Israel. But then the other word that you see in these 40 years is the promise. And remember that God brought the people of Israel out of slavery in Egypt, out of the house of slavery, out of the land of Egypt, to bring them to a land that he had promised them. And 40 years before this story, God led the people right to the brink of the promised land. And Moses chose 12 men who would be spies, who would go and kind of check out this promised land. And they went and they noticed that the men there worked out more than them, (laughs) They were a lot stronger. They had better weapons. Everything was impressive and terrifying at the same time. And they came back to Moses, and they came back to the Israelites, and 10 of the 12 spies said, we're like grasshoppers compared to these guys. Now, two of them, Joshua and Caleb, who had bravery, were like, let's go do it. If it's God's promise, let's get it. But the other 10 talked everybody out of it, And because of that, God said, well, you're going to, because you would not trust in me and enter into the promise that I have for you, you're going to wander in the wilderness for 40 years. And none of your generation, with the exception of Joshua and Caleb, will ever actually see the promised land. 40 years they've been wandering through this wilderness because of their unwillingness to trust in God. And it brings us to a story where we're going to see Moses, one of his worst moments. And I almost feel bad ending this series on Moses here because he's a wonderful man and a great example in many ways to follow. But he was just like you and me, which meant he had good days and he had bad days. He got it right and he got it wrong. And here he gets it wrong. Numbers chapter 20, verses 2 through 13. Let's read this together. It says, Now there was no water for the congregation. This is a problem. They're in the wilderness and there's no water. They assembled themselves together against Moses and against Aaron. Aaron is his, sort of his second in command. And the people quarreled with Moses and said, Would that we had perished when our brothers perished before the Lord. Why have you brought the assembly of the Lord into this wilderness that we should die here, both we and our cattle? And why have you made us come up out of Egypt to bring us to this evil place? This is 40 years ago they came out of Egypt, and they're still complaining about that. It's no place for grain or figs or vines or pomegranates, and there is no water to drink. Then Moses and Aaron went from the presence of the assembly to the entrance of the tent of meeting where where God's presence was manifest, and they fell on their faces. And the glory of the Lord appeared to them, and the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Take the staff and assemble the congregation, you and Aaron, your brother, and tell the rock before their eyes to yield its water. So you shall bring water out of the rock for them and give drink to the congregation and their cattle. So God gives Moses instructions. What does Moses do? Moses took the staff from before the Lord and he, as he was commanded. Then Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly together before the rock, and he said to them, Hear now, you rebels, shall we bring water for you out of this rock? And Moses lifted up his hand, and he struck the rock with his staff twice. And water came out abundantly, and the congregation drank and their livestock. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Because you did not believe me to uphold me as holy in the eyes of the people of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land that I have given them. In other words, you will not yourselves... Go into the promised land. These are the waters of Meribah, where the people of Israel quarreled with the Lord, and through them he showed himself holy. This is one of those stories that the more I studied it this week, the more I realized we don't know as much as maybe we think we know at first about what's happening here. But there's two things that we know for sure. One, Moses sinned, and two, it cost him. Moses sinned and it cost him. And actually, we could just stop there, and that's a good message. Because sin always costs us something. This past Wednesday night, we had a great Discover Trinity class with new people in our church who are looking for ways to connect and serve here at Trinity. And we were talking about the nature of sin. And during that, in the discussion, it came out that one of the things that we see in Genesis chapter 3, which is the fall of humankind, is that sin immediately broke three things. It broke our relationship with God. Immediately, they went hiding from God, Adam and Eve. Secondly, it breaks our relationship with each other. They began to blame each other. But then third, it breaks even our relationship with ourselves. They were naked and they were ashamed. Sin costs so much, and we see this here, that Moses, in a moment where it doesn't, I mean, if we're honest, it doesn't really seem like that big of a mistake. Yeah, he struck the rock twice instead of speaking to it, but who really cares? Well, God cared. And it cost Moses. So as we look at this story, even though we don't understand every detail of it, there's some big ideas that I think we can get out of it. There's, there's, I'm going to call these sin equations. Sin equations. Things that when we live our lives this way will always result in sin. And the first one is this. When my way is greater than God's word. When my way is greater than God's word. Listen, we live in a world where it's all about my way. Sinatra wrote a song about it, right? Uh, Burger King in the 90s had a Whopper commercial called Your Way Right Away. We live in a world where we want everything my way. This past Thursday night, I was over at the Liverpool High School. There's a blue turf there, and my girls play lacrosse, and we were over there practicing lacrosse, and a, a family from our church came walking by with their youngest child, and I, we ran over to say hi, and I got near, and I realized that their son was just weeping and crying, and they were like angry, upset tears. And I was like, oh, no, what happened? And then they explained to me, he has this little go-kart that he rides around the back of the high school, but then he saw the parking lot, <laughs> with all the big go-karts, like the cars and the trucks. And he was like, that's where I belong. That's my way. And, of course, the parents, being wise and loving, were like, no way. You are not driving your little go-kart in a busy parking lot. But he wanted his way instead of listening to their word, and it led him to these tears and this anger and this frustration. It's easy to look at little kids and say, isn't that cute? But the truth is, is you and I are not probably that different even as adults. God has said certain things to us, and yet we get so worked up because we're sure we know best. What did God command Moses and Aaron to do? Take the staff, assemble the people, speak to the rock. But what did they do? They took the raft, or they took the rod, they assembled the people, they spoke not to the rock, but to the people, and then they struck the rock twice. And what Moses is doing here is he's choosing his way. Over God's word. A few takeaways I think that we can get from this first point is this. If we're going to submit to God's word, then first and foremost, this might be very obvious, but I want to say it anyway, we have to know God's word. You have to know God's word. This is why it's important that we are in our scriptures and that we have a regular daily rhythm of reading scripture. It doesn't have to be a lot of scripture, but it has to be regular scripture because we forget God's word because we're hearing so many other voices from so many other sources in our world. And often it's confusing to know what is true. And God's word serves as this true north star in our world where we can see God's word, know God's word. And if we know God's word, then we can obey God's word. Second thing that I think we can take away from this is that no command from God is small. It doesn't seem like a big thing, but what makes it big is who spoke it. And so even the smallest instructions, even the smallest commands in Scripture matter for our lives because of who gives them to us. Another thing I think we can take away from this is that partial obedience is disobedience. Moses and Aaron, they partially obeyed. They grabbed the staff. They assembled the people. So far, so good. But then they went their own direction. And it's clear that partial obedience in God's eyes is disobedience. Another thing that I think we can take away from this is we have to pay attention to the parts of God's word that we don't like. The truth is is that most Christians have certain parts of the Bible that they like more than others. And the more that things kind of have become politicized in our society, and in our country, the more we draw lines on what we like in God's word over political things than we do over biblical things. So what you have is you have some Christians who really love what the Bible says about the sanctity of life, protecting the unborn, but they don't really care much about what the Bible has to say about taking care of foreigners and refugees and the poor. And then you have some Christians who care very much about what the Bible says about you know, uh, racial equality in the way that we treat each other, but that they don't don't want to hear what the Bible has to say about human sexuality, right? And so you have these divides that are happening within the church, not based on Scripture, but more based on politics. And I think we have to be careful that we're not choosing the Republican way over God's Word or the Democrat way over God's Word. Now, I don't talk about politics a lot, but I know what's coming next year. And I walked through this four years ago as a pastor, and it's tough. There's a tough season ahead of us as a church. And here's what next year will become. The greatest danger next year will be is it will be a distraction from the mission that God gives us as his people to build his kingdom and not to build somebody else's kingdom. And so it's important that we understand there is a difference. There's truth out there, but there's a difference between God's truth and the truth that is being promoted by people for their personal agendas and advantages. Another thing that I think we can learn from this is we have to watch out for when we're angry and we claim it's God's anger, but it's just our anger. Moses is angry here, and I think he thinks he's being angry for God, but he's really just kind of fed up. Be careful. Don't act in anger because you think you're somehow being righteously angry. Is there such a thing as righteous anger? Of course there is. But be careful that your anger is not, your anger is not actually just an excuse for you to spout off. And then I think the last thing that we learned from this is the idea that if we're going to know and follow God's word, it's, a, it's trusting and obeying. We have to trust and obey. Moses needed to trust God and obey God, and yet he didn't. And to trust and obey is the life of faith. It's placing our faith in Christ and his word. And the, the life of a Christian is the life of faith. What is faith? And this week I, I came across a Charles Spurgeon, an old preacher, wrote a book called "All of Grace," and in it, he talked about faith and he gave three descriptors of faith that I thought were super helpful. I'm just going to give this to you quick. It's not the main point, but it's helpful. He says, "Faith is the eye that looks at Christ. Faith is the eye that looks at Christ. Faith is the hand which grasps to Christ, and faith is the mouth which feeds on Christ." So, faith is the eye we see Christ, we behold Him. And through our seeing of him, we begin to place our hope in him. But it's also the hand by which we grasp onto Christ because he's grasped onto us. But then also faith is the mouth which feeds upon Christ, which means this. Before food nourishes us, it has to be received into us, right? If you went to the fair this week, the bacon bomb's not going to nourish you until you eat it. Probably won't even nourish you then, but that's the idea. In the same way, Christ received into us once our hearts hunger and thirst for Christ— And we receive what he's done into us, then he begins to strengthen us and nourish us and sustain us. So faith, the eyes which look, the hands which grasp, and the faith of the mouth which feeds. So the first sin equation is my way over God's word. The second one is this, my fame over God's glory. My fame over God's glory. Let's think for a second again. Forty years, Moses has been leading. He's been challenged on every front. We've skipped past these stories, but he's been challenged by those closest to him. His sister, Miriam. Remember the very beginning of this series? His sister who watched him put into the basket and go down the Nile and be rescued by Pharaoh's daughter. That same woman grows up. Her name's Miriam, and she she ends up serving alongside Moses. In fact, the beginning of this chapter, she just died. But there's a chapter earlier in Numbers where she actually begins, her and Aaron, Moses' is a second-hand man, they, they complain against Moses. He's attacked by even those closest to him. He's been attacked by the people that he's called to lead. They've been attacked by their enemies. And Moses, for the most part, has led with excellence and integrity. And at some point, I think he has to wonder, is anyone going to ever thank me for what I'm doing? He's feeling underappreciated. Have you ever been there? He's feeling unnoticed. He's feeling unvalued, insignificant. And so then when he gets before them, this is what he says in verse 10. Hear now you rebels. So he brands them rebels, which is not a compliment. And then he says this. Here's his pronoun. Shall we, talking about him and Aaron, shall we bring water for you out of this rock? Not shall God bring water out of this rock for you. But Moses saying, shall we? Like, look at us. We got to do this for you again? And in this moment, what commentators say is that Moses is making this in some slight way more about himself and Aaron than he is about God's power. It's his fame over God's glory. God's glory is a, is a doctrinal truth in the Bible that's sort of hard to explain. We sing about God's glory. We read about God's glory. But what does it mean? A guy named Paul David Tripp said this, that God's glory lives above and beyond any sort of description or definition You can certainly say that God is glorious and your Bible declares it to be, but you cannot with human language accurately and fully describe the glory of God. It defies our ability to explain it. The Bible does make attempts, and in the prophet Isaiah, he talks about God, and he says, God is the one who measures the waters of the universe in the hollow of his hand. Do it sometime. Pour as much water into your hand as you can hold without it beginning to spill over. And Isaiah is saying God's hand is so big and powerful that all the water in the universe fits into the hollow of his hand. He's giving us a word picture to try to show us the glory of God. He says that the nations are like a drop from a bucket to him. He stretches out the heavens like you and I would stretch out a curtain. This speaks to the size and the glory of God. But even those metaphors and even those word pictures, they help us, but they fall short. We can't even begin to understand the glory of God because God's glory is in everything that he is and everything that he does. Every attribute and action of God is stunningly beautiful in every way. Every characteristic of God and every accomplishment from his hand is totally perfect, The stunning reality of this universe is that there is one who exists that is the greatest, most beautiful, and most perfect in every way. God is gloriously great, gloriously beautiful, and gloriously perfect. There's none like him. He has no rivals, and no valid comparisons can be made to him. And yet you and I often live for our fame over his glory, that we would be known, that our name would be known, that we would be noticed that people would appreciate us and applaud us and approve of us, and we become a slave to the pursuit of fame in its various forms, whether it's via social media or whether it's via our careers or through friendship circles or accomplishments or purchases and material possessions. We're building our fame when we're supposed to live for God's glory. Now, in an article that this same pastor author wrote, Paul David Tripp, he says six quick things about the glory of God. I wanted to share them with you. Number one, you and I are Hardwired for God, or sorry, you and I are hardwired by God for glory. In other words, people are glory oriented creatures. We are attracted to glorious things, whether it's an exciting drama or a sports game, an enthralling piece of music, a beautiful scene in nature, the best steak you've ever had. We are glory oriented creatures. We live with glory hardwiring and we're always chasing bigger and better things. Great vacation last summer, right? Better one next summer. We're glory oriented and God built this into us. Secondly, God created this glorious world to point us to his glory. The best of this world is just a shadow of the glory of God, but it's to point our hearts towards the glory of God. And God keep us, protect us, and help us from falling in love with the things of this world that were simply given to us to point us to the glory of God. It would be like going, getting your family into a car and going down to Orlando, Florida and saying, we're going to go to Disney, and we're going to spend a week at Disney, and we're going to have an amazing weekend. You get 30 miles outside of the actual park, and you see the first big sign for Disney World, and you pull over at the sign, and you have your week-long family vacation around the sign. Ridiculous, right? Right? Cheaper, but ridiculous. <laughs> yet, we often do this with things in this world. God's given us relationships, meaningful relationships, to point us to the ultimate relationship we're created to have with Him, and yet we reject relationship with Him in pursuit of unhealthy relationships with others. God's given us gifts and abilities to worship Him with, and yet we end up worshiping our gifts and our abilities, and we're as foolish as the family gathered around the sign for Disney. Number three, only God's glory can satisfy the glory hunger in our hearts. C.S. Lewis in his book, Mere Christianity, says it this way. He says, creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exists. A baby feels hunger because there's such a thing as food. A duckling wants to swim because there's such a thing as water. We feel sexual desire because there is such a thing as sex. Then he says this, If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. If none of my earthly pleasures satisfy it, that does not prove that the universe is a fraud. Probably earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it, but only to arouse it, to suggest the real thing. So even the greatest things of this world, only God's glory can ultimately satisfy our hearts. Number four, sin turns you and I into glory thieves. We want to be in the center of our own world. We want to take credit for what only God can produce. We want to be sovereign. We want people to worship us. We want to establish our kingdom and our rules and punish people who don't live by our rules. This is you and I being glory thieves. Number five, we inaccurately point the finger of blame and we actually prolong what's called our glory dysfunction. Here's what I mean. We assume that the reason we're not happy is because there's something outside of us that either, either we haven't found yet or has been kept from us, or there's something against us on the outside. But the Bible says that your and mine's biggest problem is never outside of us. It's always inside of us. And then number six, here's the good news. God's grace alone has the power to cure our glory dysfunction. Receiving God's grace leads us to giving him Glory. Instead of pursuing our fame. Anytime we go after our fame over God's glory, it always results in sin. And the last thing this morning is this. My comfort over God's call. My comfort over God's call. You know, when we get to this story, if you're familiar with uh, the Old Testament, this is not the first time that the Israelites have complained about water. Uh, there's a story back in Exodus. It's very similar to this, but it was almost right after they came out of Egypt. And it's in Exodus chapter 17. Uh, it's before the Ten Commandments, and it's the same deal. It says that they were uh, in the wilderness, and they said there's no water to drink, and they're mad with Moses, and Moses goes before God. And you know what God tells Moses to do? He says, Moses, take the staff and strike the rock, and I'll provide water for the people. And that time Moses obeys, and it goes exactly according to plan. Moses goes, he strikes the rock, And the water comes out. And so when it happens again, I have to think that Moses in his mind thought back to the last time it happened and thought, I know know how to do this. I've done this before. And yet God said something a little different this time, but I'm gonna do it the way I did it before. In fact, I'm gonna double down. I'm gonna do what I did before, but I'm gonna do it twice as hard because the first time he struck the rock once and this time he strikes the rock twice. I'm gonna ask the musicians to join me. This reminds us of something very important, that God is not the God who spoke to us 10 years ago, five years ago, a year ago. God wants to speak to us today. And if we get too comfortable in what God was doing 10 years ago, five years ago, even a year ago, but we're not hearing what he wants to call us to do today, sometimes we just go back to what we're comfortable with, and we choose our comfort over his call. We talked about this last week, that God is not a formula That we just plug things into a formula would be great because formulas are comfortable and they are predictable and how many of you like life when it's comfortable and it's predictable but God is a person with whom we have a relationship and how many of you have learned that people are neither comfortable nor predictable. And if you think people are predictable, then you weren't at the fair this week walking in a crowd trying to predict what the person in front of you was going to do next. (laughs) They just randomly stop or they turn around and all of a sudden you're going a different direction. I thought the fair people were the worst. And then I went to the farmer's market yesterday morning and I think they're even less predictable what they're going to do next. People are not predictable. God is not predictable. Yeah, 40 years ago, strike the rock once and I'm going to provide water. But I'm still speaking, Moses. And today I'm saying something new to you. Trust me for a new word. Trust me for new direction. Listen to my call today and obey. Moses didn't, he sinned and he suffered. So to be a Christian is to live with these truths in the center of your being. It's God's word over my way. It's God's glory over my fame. It's God's call over my comfort. And then we get to the end of the story. You know what's the most surprising thing about this entire story to me? Water came out. Moses got it wrong. He disobeyed God, and water still came pouring out of the rock to meet the needs of a sinful people. And it reminds us of the most important truth that's probably taught in all the Scripture: is that even in our sinning, God is always saving. Even in our sinning, God is always saving. Even when we are not faithful, God is faithful. Even when we don't get it right, he pours out his blessing upon us. And just like this rock in the wilderness provided water to satisfy the natural thirst of God's people in this season, many years later, Jesus Christ came to satisfy our spiritual thirst so we would not go in, any, in many other ways. In fact, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, as I close, let me let me point you to this. The Apostle Paul is thinking about this story that we looked at this morning. And he says... Uh, I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and they all passed through the sea. They're talking about the Red Sea. They all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food, speaking of the manna and the quail. They all drank the same spiritual drink. And look at what Paul says. For they drank from the spiritual rock, capital R, the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased. They were overthrown in the wilderness. Now, these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. And we get to the New Testament and we're hit with this revelation. Christ was the rock in the wilderness that was struck. And just like Moses struck the rod, rock twice in the wilderness, in many ways, Jesus was struck twice by the wrath of humankind and by the wrath of God. Struck at the hands of humans, but struck at the hand of God, where he suffered... He paid the price that we should have paid. He was the rock that was struck. Why? So that you and I, in our wilderness moments, might have living water, that we might drink and find life in Jesus and in Jesus alone, so that we might live according to his word, that we might live for his glory, and that we might live to hear his call. Jesus, the rock, struck to bring us the living water that we might live. Let's pray together this morning.